I'm Dr. J.D. Romick. Are you happy in your life? Are you happy with your life? Welcome back, everybody. I'm so excited to be here today with this conversation. Um, I'm here with Mary Peterson. She's the dean of the psychology department here at George Fox, is such a high energy person, and I'm very excited to dive into this topic today. We're talking about happiness, and I just wanted to introduce Mary and, and let her give a little bit of her background now, too. Sure. I'm happy to do that. So i obviously Mary Peterson. I'm the dean of behavioral health sciences, so I have the graduate programs and undergraduate programs in psychology and counseling and social work. Behavioral health sciences, sorry, not psychology. Yeah. Okay. And I've been a practicing clinical psychologist now for about 25 years. Wow. My area has always been health psychology, looking at what we call biopsychosocial spiritual and how those four things interact to help people live healthier lives. So really practical strategies. That's great. I mean, even in physical therapy, we use the biopsychosocial model yeah. because people aren't just a, a body. Right. They're also a soul and a spirit, which is why I'm really excited to have you on because it seems like the spirit of our country needs, you know, maybe it's more knowledge of how to fix, you know, what problems we have. But, you know, thinking about happiness, I, I'd love I'd love for you to define it because in my mind, you know, our, our country's so depressed. Right. Is happiness the opposite of depression? Is it joy? Is it like, what does it mean to really be happy? Yeah. Well, and that's a really good question because there's so many definitions of happiness. And where the research has really landed is happiness can be defined in two ways. Really, it's are you happy in your life and are you happy or are you happy with your life? It has two mm -hmm. components. So let me just unpack it. Yeah. So you have a daughter. I do. Right? So tell me like a super stressful time lately in the life of you and your daughter. Well, I don't know if you can hear. I I had a sinus infection, not a sinus infection. It's called RSV. It's this horrible respiratory virus that my daughter brought home from daycare. The other day I was staying home with her because I was sick. She was feeling a little bit better. So she didn't nap. She was so full of energy. And all I wanted to do was nap. I was so tired uh, and miserable. So I went to bed at about 6 p.m. that night. But uh, at the end of the day, I did feel a little bit of guilt for not feeling very in the moment. Yeah. And I felt like this day that I could have had that was so special and meaningful, I feel like I wasted, which moms have guilt all the time about stuff. But That is really true. Yeah. Okay, so that's a perfect example because I said happy in your life, like mm -hmm. happy in your life, like are you feeling joyful, content, excited? Well, probably at that moment, if somebody said, are you happy in your life? You would have been like, what are you nuts? <laughs> are you know, you I'm stressed, I'm <laughs> frustrated, I want to care for my daughter. And yet if I said, ah, but JD, are you happy with your life? Mm. Like overall with your life, then you probably would have said, I'm married to the man I love. I have this great daughter. I have a graduate degree. Yeah. You bet. I'm happy with my life. Yeah. And so that's what we always have to keep in mind. We might not be happy in our lives, but what really matters is are we happy with our life? Yeah. With the broader understanding that we're pursuing the goals that matter to us. Mm. And happiness is such a hot topic now, and you probably know this. Uh, there's 
a professor at Yale, and she started the happiness course yes. several years ago, Lori Santos, and she's great. But at any rate, it's the most popular course at Yale, and it surprised everybody how many students, because you would think these undergrad students at Yale, like, what do they not have to be happy about? Right. They just and got into Yale. That's amazing. Exactly. Right. And then it moved into a Coursera course and over a million people have taken it. And I just bring that up because happiness is such a hot topic. Yeah. So definition, it's this subjective sense. Am I happy in my life? And more important though, am I happy with my life? Mm. Yeah. So. No, that's great. Definition. Because I think about, you know, where does, where does depression land on that? Because we do have such a depressed country or, you know, we classify us as, really unhappy. Like, how do we get sure. here? What's the problem? Yeah, no, and I appreciate that because that's a really important juxtaposition, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so why we tend toward depression and what the problem is with the whole happiness piece is our brains, think about, you know, primitive brain, we have a negativity bias, meaning that when survival was dependent on our brain scanning, identifying problems, potential threats out there, we had to do that to survive, mm. right? Because if we didn't anticipate a potential threat, whether it's an animal or if you know, you're know you a pioneer person scanning the horizon, looking for potential danger, even in the weather mm. or predators or attackers, that's what kept us alive. Interesting. Right? So we're always scanning. All the time we're scanning. Is there a threat in our environment? Is there a risk in our environment? Because it's primordial. Our survival was dependent on it. Interesting. The problem is, is our brain gets hooked then on negative stimuli, negative things. Like you might have made a mistake and then your brain like ruminates on that because we have that negativity bias. Our brain hooks onto the negative. Interesting. Right. So it's like that that phrase, like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yes, yes. People do that all the time. Yeah. And I want to say, be gentle with yourself, give grace to yourself because that was essential for survival back then. The problem is it's no longer essential for survival now. Right. And so if we're constantly vigilant and scanning for problems, our cortisol gets up, we remain hypervigilant, and it's exhausting. Yeah. So when I think about, you know, our physiology, maybe you're surrounded by constant threats. Yes. You know, wh- what does that physiology do long-term? Say you have high cortisol for a long time, or maybe you have decreased vitamin D. Yeah. So like, I know Alaska is one of those countries, countries, excuse me, states within our country that have, you know, high rates of depression and suicide. So physiologically, is there something going on that that creates this constant state of stress or depression. Tell me more. Well, no, you hit the nail on the head. You said it exactly right. What happens in this state of vigilance is our cortisol, our our adrenaline, our stress hormone, it peaks and we can't operate at high levels of cortisol for very long before our body starts to feel it and our immune system starts to become compromised. So that's why when people are under a lot of stress, they tend to be more vulnerable to colds and flus and just picking up all kinds of things because their immune system just gets tired. It can't be in this constant high production state. So that's the downside. And that's where I think we have to say, okay, 
give ourselves grace. We understand why we're hypervigilant. We understand why we're scanning for threat. And we also can take a step back and appreciate the fact that that's no longer necessary for survival. (laughs) And what we encourage people to do, really, there's a couple quick fixes. And then I'll tell you like, yes, what we really want to do to build happiness. But to start off, what we find oftentimes when people get hooked by the negative, their worry, their ruminations, it's perspective taking. Hmm. If they can oftentimes step back and take a different perspective. So for example, what's the last thing you were really worried about happening? And it can be absurd. Honestly, every day I have these intrusive thoughts of horrible things happening to my child, like even just like the bookcase at home falling on her or like something that we, we have literally nothing in our house that will fall right. on my child unless the TV unmounts from the wall somehow. But it's just you think about these, like you're saying, absurd scenarios. That's exactly what your brain does. Survival. I can, I can understand keeping your child alive. Right. You don't want them to get eaten by it. a lion. Right. You know, right. Now like you're that. with me. Now but you're with I'm, me. That's exactly right. Oh, I've been here for about two years. So it's crazy. <laughs> anyway, continue. So I think what I would say is for perspective taking, because we know if we can shift our perspective, that really helps. It's called psychological distancing. We've got to distance from that intense emotion Mm. or that ruminative thought. So you might say, all right, I am going to live my life according to probability, not possibility. Okay. Right? Okay. Because yes, is there a possibility that your TV is going to come unhinged from the wall? I mean, I don't know. Maybe there is some possibility (laughs) of that. But you could logically say, but the probability is pretty low. And so it is owning that perspective that I am going to live in a world of probability, not possibility. Right. Right. Because then that puts the threat a little bit more in perspective. Yeah. Kind of, it, it kind of puts yourself in check. It It, does. It lets you know, okay, you might, you're a little bit unreasonable here, right? but for some people it can be very paralyzing. So I can understand why that would be important. Right. So I'm going to throw something else your way because, you know, here we're talking a little bit about anxiety, stress, kind of this constant state of hypervigilance, right. taking away maybe from being present in the moment. Yeah, we'll Is that, get to that. I was, I was going to say, I know that might be, might be a fix, but then what about when we live on the other side of that, where we are constantly trying to engage in things with um, more dopamine? So like you've heard maybe this phrase like dopamine nation or like, Oh, uh, that's a great book. Yeah. I was going to say that that's a a book I I know, but it's the, this idea that we are always chasing that hit of dopamine. Is it because we have a deficit? Is it because dopamine equals happiness? Like, tell me more about that. Well, yeah. Dopamine could be its own podcast. Uh, So dopamine is, as Anna Lemke says, the molecule of more, wanting more, Mm. wanting more. Uh, and the thing about dopamine, yes, we do chase dopamine. Uh, when we talk about bigger solutions, like I'm going to take us back, like bigger solutions to what we're going to do to build our happiness. The one consistent thing that you can do, it's a dopamine predictor without a doubt, is relationships. Mm. We say get social. Martin Seligman, this was now a landmark study about 15 years ago, went through all the research on what predicts happiness. And it came down to one word, people, people. Wow. And 
that works with dopamine. Your brain lights up when you're around people, when you're interacting with people. The Harvard Longitudinal Study, now they've been tracking these men. It's a group of men for maybe 60 years. And it's a group of people who started in Harvard in the the 30s, and they matched it with the sample of people in lower income areas. And now they have followed this group of men for decades. And they interview them regularly, and they predict life satisfaction. They it's a really detailed analyst study, and they probably have more data on this than any other single study that I know of. Wow. Because it's been analyzed so many ways. But, you know, the one thing, it's not how much money they make. Like, these are high-achieving people. It's not how much money they made, their position, work position. It's not the things that we would think, but the things that predict their satisfaction in life. It's their relationships, their social connectedness. Do they have a family? Do they have buddies that they play with? And I'll tell you, like play golf with or play sports with. Totally. And I'll tell you, it's not any different for the higher SES than it is for the lower socioeconomic status. So what predicts, no matter where people are in life, the thing that makes the difference for happiness is people. Wow. So now I'm going to ask you something. Think about like one of the best thing, best times in your life. Were you alone or were you with people? For me, always with people. I feel like, you know, I'm an extroverted person, but I'll give an example of my recent birthday party. So I, I had a presentation that day. I gave a virtual presentation at a physical therapy symposium for Oregon, which was high pressure. I felt nervous. And the week leading up was so busy and I was just so exhausted. Okay. And going into this party, I was like, I just, I should just cancel this. Like I'm so exhausted. I need, I need a break. And I said, no, just let people come over. People started coming over and I immediately was just like, I was taken out of my funk. I was taken out of this negative headspace. And I knew being an extroverted person that that type of stuff energizes me. But when you're in that headspace of, kind of that negativity bias of like, I need sleep. I need to do what it takes to survive and feel like me again, enter people. I felt completely uplifted. Yes. It was amazing. Yes. And that it fits. If you think about it, you know, we talk about your primitive brain. We couldn't survive without the tribe. Absolutely. We need people. And when we're discouraged, when we're down, when we're tired, if we're around people, it lifts our mood. It's the one consistent pleasure predictor. Wow. So that's the one thing I would say if people say, what's the one thing that I could do to increase the happiness in my life? I would say, get connected to people. That's been hard the last two years. Yes. Three years. I don't know how long it's been since COVID kind of shifted everything. Right. Yes. And that can be in our loneliness podcast because that's where it has been exacerbated over COVID. Because you're right. As people feel increasingly disconnected, their happiness goes down. You know, what we know is that being around people is so important to us. You know, in some research, they have people, believe it or not, 
carry around clickers and they're clicking all the time on how happy they are. And then when they track it back, again, the happiest part of people's day is when they're connecting with other people. Wow. Right? So, and again, sure, everything is, you know, it just depends. Everything is relative to the individual. So an introvert definitely needs people as much as an extrovert. They just don't need them for as much time. Right. But introverts are relational beings as much as extroverts are. Well, one thing that I heard, so the fact that, you know, I've heard this, that the fact that um, kids that are abused actually do better than kids that are neglected. I'm wondering about, you know, the feeling of, of neglect or that kind of like that isolated feeling versus getting some attention somehow. It's like, it's like it's hardwired in human. And, and not that I want to bring that up as, you know, obviously I don't, I don't think that's, those are great cases in by any stretch of the imagination, but the fact that humans are so hardwired to wanting to be with people that when we are disconnected from people in such a profound way, that it actually impacts us more negatively than even the worst kind of interactions with people. So I don't know if, if that connects with at all, what you're saying of just the human experience is made so much better with interaction with other humans. It's just the way that we're hardwired. Right. We are hardwired to need people. And it also works within our spiritual ethos as well, right? Mm. That we are hardwired to be in relationship with people. Right. And so that's the one thing that, again, from a scientific standpoint, relationships predict happiness now, with that Harvard study, where they're even seeing that relationships predict mortality. So people who've had relationships and healthy relationships, supportive relationships in their life, have better longevity. I was reading that even they have lower rates of obesity, chronic That's illness. Right. I spoke a little bit with Kim Eppin about Blue Zones and part of their... Yeah, you know, the healthiest cultures yes. in the world, right. kind of part of their power nine right. qualities that make, you know, make them healthy long term. They have a large social component where they have the right tribe. They put family first. Right. They belong to some type of faith based right. organization, and I, I think it just speaks to this part of us that needs people. Yes, absolutely. Profound. So that's the first thing. Like when I say the big things that we can do to increase yes. happiness, and again, the research is really coalesced very nicely around this. I mean, we know this stuff. So first thing, get social or get people in your life. Yes. The next thing is give thanks. Mm. You wouldn't realize it, but gratitude. And again, there are so many incredibly strong, robust scientific studies on the power of gratitude. Mm -hmm. And gratitude I think does a couple of things. You know, when I talked about perspective taking, gratitude takes us out of ourself. Mm. It helps us to be other oriented and being other oriented is a predictor for happiness. Liz Dunn and her work in her lab, other oriented helps us again to be happier and gratitude can be different things. You know, the standard gratitude practice that's all over the research is at the end of the night, You write down three to five things that you were grateful for that day. And it has to be different things. It can't just be, I'm grateful for my family. Well, yeah, great. Yeah. But you know, like I'm grateful for my daughter's smile. 
Yeah. You know, it, simple things. Or mm-hmm. I'm grateful that a student responded or the patient I was working with today realized that they had higher mobility, higher self-efficacy. So it's every night, three to five things, just jot them down that you're grateful for. And it takes you out of that negativity bias, it sounds like. That's where exactly you're right. only looking for the bad things, or you're only looking for the things that went wrong. You're ruminating on that weird thing you said or right. that negative interaction that you had, and that can totally taint your entire day. You know, that's a wonderful connection. That's exactly right. That not only does it, you know, obviously build pro-social and gratitude, it counters the negativity bias. That's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. I just, there you go. I'm learning from you as we go. This is great. <laughs> so, you know, and, and then another, it's an interesting twist. So I just, this was, um, uh, I want to say in September, I had just read the latest article on gratitude because like, I love this stuff. And it said the way to really potentiate or make a gratitude intervention effective is you write a letter of gratitude to somebody, but instead of sending it to them, you actually read it to them. Okay. So I know. So then I was going out to see my father who's 93. uh, And so I wrote him this, and he's just, uh, you know, wonderful person. So I wrote this note of gratitude, like all the great things that I'd missed seeing them over COVID, even though we Zoomed. Uh, So I go out to Ohio and I said, all right, dad. And, you know, he's not very touchy-feely kind of guy, you know, he's German, pretty stoked. (laughs) I said, so I want to read this gratitude letter to you. It's just all the things that I'm grateful for, you know, for you as my father. Uh, So it's like, oh, you know, kind of not sure about it, (laughs) but, you know, all right. You know, his daughter's a psychologist. He kind of has to put up with this stuff. So I read him this. And so let just this note about, as I said, the things I'm grateful for about him. And of course I teared up and he got a little bit teary, but, oh, you know, okay. So then fast forward though, two months later, he's diagnosed with cancer. And then he died within about three months. But my dad, who is not sentimental or emotional, that thank you card or that gratitude card was on his nightstand. Oh. I know. That makes I know. Me, like, want to tear up. That's- and and you could wow. tell it had been, and so when I went out there, you know, to help at the end, you could tell it had been creased open and closed so many times. Oh. And I thought, oh my gosh. Now, would it have had the impact if you just opened it up in the mail? It, maybe, but maybe not because they couldn't have communicated. Right. You can, you can read your own your own voice through the the um, letter rather than hearing someone else's inflection and, and what they really mean when they say something. Yeah. Wow. You, that's exactly right. You hit the nail on the head that you can bring your own self to it. Right. So that would be another gratitude thing. I don't know. Like, you know, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. Maybe if people who are listening to this think in terms of it's the season. Yeah. You know, sometime in the next six weeks, maybe. I'll do yeah. this. Write a note and say, all right, I was listening to this podcast. You know, and they said that this really makes a difference. So here we go. This improve, improves my happiness. I'll do it. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so like I said, first thing you could do to improve happiness is get social within appropriate limits. Right. Of course. Uh, the next thing is the gratitude, three to five things every night. Uh, that works. Also, if you want to really do something special, just yeah. write one note. And read it to somebody. Yeah. Uh, okay. So then the third thing is the other thing that you said is be present. 
Mm. Like be in the moment, right? It's hard to do when we have little devices that take us to an alternate reality all the time. Well, you know, that's exactly right. I forget which psychologist said it's like, you know, your phone is as if you have a wheelbarrow next to you full of every DVD, every picture, every conversation, everything you're thinking about, you're wanting to do in your house right next to you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you're supposed to stay in the moment. Yeah. When you have this wheelbarrow full of all these great things you want to look at, it's kind of like, you know, our phone is like so tempting. Uh, But the present being present, our minds wander. They, our minds are busy minds, you know, and they are constantly telling us stories. A lot of Mm -hmm. times they're not so great stories. Yeah. Right. I resonate with that. Yes. And again, when they do the research on this and they have people like, I don't know where they get these people who are willing to do this, but they really do. Probably they pay them to do it, but they have, again, clickers and at different times they have to click what's, you know, are they attending right now? Is their mind wandering? And as it shows, our mind wanders about 40% of the time. Wow. And you know, it <laughs> wanders to things like we screwed up in the past. It wanders to things that we're worried about in the mm-hmm. future. The negativity bias, right? Scanning, scanning yep. all the time, right? Our minds are wandering. Yeah. And people's mind wanders are less happy than people who can be present. Wow. And yeah. so that's where, like you said, our minds are busy minds. They tell us stories. They wander. They like... Some people say depression is worrying about the past and then anxiety is worrying about the future. Yeah. You know, I think to the extent we can savor the moment, like right now we're sitting here and it's a good vibe. You know, it's a fun conversation. We're talking about happiness, learning about your daughter. You learn about my dad, you know, so like we're here. And when you're holding your daughter and you just... Instead of letting your mind wander about what you're going to do for dinner and when you're going to do the laundry, to just, you know, touch her and feel her skin or smell her sweet smell that's just hers. And a lot of times what we have to do to bring ourselves into the moment is, again, breathe. And I think that you've already done a podcast on breath. Yes, and I was how important. say focus on the breathing is actually something I come back to. It's right. like, come back to your body. Stay out of your, out of right. your head. Right. Come back to your body. Be here with this person. Yes. And I think then anchoring our senses, you know, what am I seeing right now? Right? What am I touching? What am I smelling? Hmm. Because it brings us back to the moment. And I think so much of the time, the key times to be present are when we're with people. Hmm. And why wouldn't we, if we know that being with people predicts happiness, why would we want to squander that right? by worrying about, you know, all the things that we have to do this weekend? Or sitting on our phones. That's that's a constant. Oh. A constant when I'm with a group of people, especially if there's not a lot of familiarity with yes. everyone. Everybody just resorts to going to their phone. Oh. And it is infuriating when I'm sitting here. I look around the room. Everybody's look, looking at their phone. I'm with something. you. It's yeah. terrible. And actually, that could be a whole other podcast on phones. For sure. Uh, and what we do know, have you ever noticed this? This is a true thing. If you're at dinner with a group of people, nobody's on their phone. One person picks up their phone. It's dominoes. Yep. Everybody else picks yep. up their phone. In a waiting room, you know, they, again, do these studies. Waiting room, if people are allowed to take their phones, they never make eye contact. 
if they have to leave their phones outside for whatever reason, they don't know that's the experiment, but they have to leave their phones outside, they smile at each other. Sometimes mm -hmm. they might talk, but they acknowledge each other. And again, so we know what acknowledging another person does. Yeah. It's positive. And that phone pulls us away. So that's you amazing. Right. That's a that's even a good, I mean, if I can add one tip into this yeah, after do. all of yours, no. just as a way to stay mindful and present, you know, my husband and I will will go through these phases where we as soon as we get home, we put our phones in the drawer. If we get That's a call, great. maybe we have our watches on. So if we get a call, right. we can see if there's an emergency. But otherwise, we're not texting. We're not surfing. We're not doing anything. We're really soaking up the moments that we're with our two-year-old. Or maybe we're at a dinner party. Yeah. We can soak up the moments that we're with these friends that we don't get to interact with often because we have a two-year-old. So I, I'm really vibing with this and, and being present with people being being social, getting out there, anytime we're social and we have our phones, it is an automatic disconnector. You are absolutely right. And that's a great practice you and your husband have. You are absolutely right. I love the way you said that. Automatic disconnector. Yeah. So probably then the last two things to keep in mind and you as, you know, physical therapist is going to know all of this. I would say the fourth thing. So social is number one. Number two is gratitude. Mm -hmm. Right. And they said number three is be present. Number four would be active. Move. Yes. Move. Yes. So we know that, well, you know this, you could do the whole podcast on movement and what happens with endorphins. So you, you know, what happens with endorphins when people move? So that's another, I, mean, I don't know if it's a, always just a dopamine hit, but you have epinephrine, norepinephrine. Right. When you move, it's amazing how your mood, your affect everything changes. Right. But beforehand, it's like, uh, the drudgery, like I have to move. I have to right. do something that's forceful that I don't really like. And I think the movement gets you again, kind of out of your own head it does. as well. It does. So it just allows you to clear your head. I've even started a practice where if I'm upset or if I'm feeling a little bit un uneasy about something, I go for a walk. Yes. And then I come back to it because I can't with a level head or an unhappy spirit, bring my best to something. So right. walk it off. That is, is always so smart. A that really is great. Helpful piece. Yes. And now you know it's part of the evidence-based research on happiness. Absolutely. Right. I love that. So movement. Movement. And then on the last it. one would be sleep. Go to sleep. Yes. And our sleep is a problem for a lot of people. And that's probably again a whole other topic. Yeah. But to the extent that we can do all the things that we know are good, sleep hygiene, going to bed at the same time every night, get up at the same right. time, avoid caffeine late, really to prioritize sleep. And I think that research has been even more clear over the last maybe 15 years how important sleep is. Yes. So that would be the other thing. It's really hard to be happy in your life if you're exhausted. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And over time, it probably would drag someone down so much that it would affect the bigger aspects of life. Right. But what we know is it's really hard to feel good in a day when you haven't had at least, you know, six hours of sleep. Yes. Minimum. Minimum. We did have an episode on sleep. So working on that eight plus hours is, oh, yeah. is always a challenge, but it is. I love that. Well, thank okay. you so much for sharing. These tips are going to be I'm hoping impactful for those listening. They've been very impactful for me, especially because I'm obsessed with optimal health, 
living a happy life. And so many of these overlapping strategies will not only hit our mental health, but make us happier overall, I think is great. So thank you so much, Mary. Well, thanks for having me. Excited to have you back on. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.